As we continue our, this brief series on God's blueprint for marriage, I want to focus this morning, asking a question. Does God have just one specific individual that He's chosen for us to marry? And if we get it wrong, have we missed out on God's best? And regardless of how we answer the question, how do we go about finding who this right person is for our lives? And as I said last week, in a single message, I, I can't even begin to attempt to answer all of the what-if kind of questions that come our way. So like I said last week, c- complement this process by picking up the study guide and either in a group or by yourself, continue the process of engaging with the material. My goal in this series, and that's why I've called it God's Blueprint for Marriage, is to lay solid biblical foundations on which all the other answers to all the various what-ifs have to be built on anyway. And I want to use as a point of departure, as an anchor for our message this morning, a very interesting, fascinating story in the Old Testament, which is the story of how Abraham found a wife for his son Isaac. It might surprise you to know that it is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. 67 verses given to this one little story. That should be even more surprising when we realize the nature of the book of Genesis, which is to compress huge amounts of prehistory and patriarchal history into 50 chapters. You wouldn't think somebody would waste 67 verses on the selection of one woman for one lad. I think it goes to show us how crucially important this issue is. Now, of course, the details of the story have to do with finding a wife, but it applies just as much the other way in terms of the principles that I think this story suggests to us. Now, if you happen to be already married, you might say, well, this is several years too late. (laughs) Well, it won't be. It won't be. I think for many of you, it will come just as a confirmation. Uh, Many of you have children who are not yet married, and it's part of our responsibility as parents to guide them, and this will help you. And for some of us, it may even suggest, as one individual came to me afterwards and affirmed the truth of this statement, it might show you one or two issues where you uh, transgressed or violated or or did not pay attention to one of these principles in your own marriage. And sometimes that can have long-standing ramifications. And so you deal with those things the way God tells us to deal with past mistakes. You don't undo your history. You repent, ask for forgiveness, and you move on with new power and new insight. So anywhere along that spectrum, it's important for us who are already married to be remembering these things as well. And as I said, the encouragement at having done right is also significant. Somebody somebody else came to me last week, uh, last night and said, wow, that was a real encouragement because I had forgotten how God had worked in my marriage and that gave this person encouragement for other issues. So God works in various ways. So nobody ever tunes out anything from God's word. Okay, that's important. All right, let me give you some background first of all. Abraham's wife Sarah has been dead for about three years. Abraham himself is getting old and his son Isaac needs a wife and so he commissions his head servant, Eliezer I think was his name, although this chapter doesn't say who it was, and he gives him this commission. He says, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living. He was now living in the land of Canaan, modern day Palestine, but I will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. So the, the, the first criterion, if you will, that he enjoins upon his head servant is, this woman must not be a Canaanite. The reason for that is obvious. Canaanite culture was an unbelievably decadent moral culture. 
And, and the sin of that nation would reach its zenith at the time when Israel would come back under Moses and destroy the people of that land. They were certainly not worshippers of Jehovah that Abraham had learned to worship and Isaac had been trained to worship. Now you might say, well, just a minute, his people back home, Mesopotamia, modern-day Babylon, uh, modern-day Iraq, I should say, Babylon in those times, well, they weren't any greater worshippers of Jehovah. Uh, True, but there was one fundamental difference. Abraham's people had descended from Shem, one of three of Noah's sons. And if you read Genesis chapter 9, you will find that when Noah pronounced uh, the future of his three sons, when it came to Shem, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So the Shemites were already particularly uh, chosen to be part of the line of divine revelation. So there was something in history that had set them apart. Uh, At any rate, faced with the alternative of, of choosing a wife for his son from among the Canaanites, this was for Abraham the closest thing to finding an equal yoke. Because he was on the front edge of redemptive history. You know. There wasn't any redemptive history to draw upon at that moment. So that's the first very obvious criterion. He or she must be a child of God with a common spiritual destiny. I hear all kinds of rationalizations when it comes to this. Oh, we have so much in common even though he or she is not a Christian. They are very open to, the, to my faith. They don't even mind my going to church. Well, listen, it's not like playing golf. It's not like saying, well, she likes golf, I don't. I don't mind if she plays it once a week. Bill Hybels in his book, Fit to be Tied, puts it very succinctly when he said, there are three very compelling, there are probably more, but there are three very compelling reasons for this first obvious criterion, that he or she must be a child of God with a common spiritual destiny. He said, first of all, you have a common treasure. Listen, can you imagine... Being married to somebody and you cannot speak about the thing that is closest to your heart. And if you are followers of Christ, the thing that is closest to our heart, however messed up we may be at any point, is Jesus. It's the one thing that always tells me I'm a child of God. When people talk about Jesus, even though their obedience may be far from mine, my whole heart is moved. Imagine not being able to talk to your husband or to your wife about Jesus. Common blueprint. The God, the Word of God. That's why I've called these messages God's blueprint for marriage. With someone who has a common spiritual destiny, you'll be able to talk about these. One couple came to me last night, thinking, beginning a relationship. We've already listened to five of these messages. You can't do that if you don't have a common blueprint. What about all those inevitable forks in the road that will come when you're married? How are you going to make decisions? When one of you wants to go to the Word of God and the other one says, Why? And then thirdly, a common strength when life throws up those inevitable difficulties as some in our midst are going through even this week. What an incredible consolation as a spouse to know that my wife or my husband has access to the same God through the same Jesus and will be prompted by the same Holy Spirit to seek for strength in the one place where it matters the most. When I travel away from home as I do, or sometimes don't travel anyway physically, but I'm in a different space, and my wife suddenly is plunged into some difficulties, however significant they may be, and some of them I can't do anything about. I have one huge consolation to know that she knows how to go to God. And there's a God she has to go to. 
Listen, if you violate this principle, this criterion, the selection of a mate, you have no common treasure, no common blueprint, and no common sense. This really should be a no-brainer. Well, anyway, uh, Ab- uh, Abraham's servant has a practical question. He said, listen, Mesopotamia is 500 miles away from here. <laughs> what if this girl doesn't want to come? You mean she's going to travel to a place that she hasn't seen to marry uh, some kind of a distant relative that she's never seen before? And which parent is going to be willing to send their daughter to this distance? So Abraham, can I take Isaac back? I've run into trouble there. Can I take Isaac back to Mesopotamia with me? Maybe when they see him, they'll change their mind. She'll change her mind. Abraham is categorical in his response. Make sure that you do not take my son back there. And he says, why? The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me an oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. You see, God had called Abraham out of Mesopotamia into Canaan. It wasn't a vacation or a relocation for a job transfer. It was a calling to a whole new destiny to be a blessing to the nations of the world through the seed that God would give to him in the land that God would give to him. And Abraham knew full well what happened when once he took off from that land. In the 13th chapter of Genesis, you will read that when there was famine in that land, Abraham forgot about the power of God to keep fulfill his promises and he took off for Egypt. And we've learned about the problems of running off to Egypt in recent times. And he got into all kinds of trouble there. And he said, no way, you do not take my son back out of this place because he is a key role. He's He's a key role to play in the accomplishing of this destiny that God has given me. He's got a land to inherit. He's got a generation to sire. And he's got a holy purpose to fulfill. Going back out of Canaan is a reverse of the divine promises, uh, divine uh, command without the divine permission, and that is to risk losing the divine inheritance. He said, he's not to go back. You see, finding a wife for him wasn't just a matter of finding some good woman who'd be happily married to him and they'd settle down and live happily ever after. She had a destiny to fulfill that was intertwined with Abraham's and Isaac's destiny. To bear and raise sons and daughters and, and to continue the line to the promised Messiah. For way back in the book of Genesis, after the first sin, God had promised that a seed of the woman would come that would crush the head of the serpent. That was how glorious the destiny was. And so he says, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, you, my servant, will be released from this hold of mine. Only do not take my son back there. He reiterated that. The second criterion for that comes from that is, not only must our prospective spouse be a child of God with a common spiritual destiny, he or she must be in harmony with God's specific call on your life as well. Many years ago, I remember talking to a pastor who had, in, in the course of the conversation, and as pastors often talk about congregations and congregational life, and he talked about how a, just recently a very divisive couple from their congregation had left. What was interesting was the reason for this man's divisive behavior. Apparently when he was younger he had been called to become a pastor. So he had studied hard and got himself ready to become a pastor. But he married a Christian woman who was not interested in being a pastor's wife. And so she wouldn't let him become a pastor. He didn't. And so in every church that he went he tried his best to get himself into leadership positions to somehow fill that deep, deep vacuum and longing that God's calling had created. And we all know what happens when people try to push themselves into positions of leadership. Others respond, this man got bitter, and tragedy of tragedies, he ended up dividing the very organism that he was hoping to build one day. And all because the woman that he married didn't share his call. Now there's nothing wrong, by the way, for a woman to not want to be a pastor's wife. Nothing wrong with that at all. But if you're called to be a pastor, then she's the wrong one for you. Now you might say, well just a minute, uh, I'm not called to any lofty... Yes, you are. Yes, you are. 
The fact that some of us do it full time and you do it because you earn a living in a different way doesn't make one bit of difference. Every single one of us in Jesus Christ have a high and a holy calling. We've been given gifts and passions. We are intended to find them and use them. You're intended to become part of one local church. And there's no perfect one. You'll intend to become part of one local church and work as a team to fulfill the mission of that church as a unique expression of Christ's mission in this world. And therefore, the person that you choose to marry needs to be in harmony with that specific calling on your life. Bible puts it this way. He says, true compatibility implies more than just a shared belief. It implies a shared intensity of belief. In other words, a vibrant, spirit-led, radically committed Christian woman should never settle for a nominal, comfortable Christian man, or vice versa, who does little more than wear the lapel pin and mimic the jargon. What happens when the Spirit leads her to sacrifice time or money, or go out on a limb of faith, or go to Lebanon, change careers, churches, or lifestyles? What happens when she wants to obey that leading, but her less committed spouse says, Don't get fanatical. Why do you have to make waves? I don't like crawling out on limbs. I like our life just the way it is. No changes. That response spends major trouble and disappointment for the deeply committed spouse. So get a handle on your calling first. And then think of the other person in terms of that harmony with God's purposes for your life. Doing it the other way around is risky. Well, the servant got an answer to his question, so he packed his bags, packed his camels, and off he went. And scholars tell us it takes approximately 21 days to make the journey from uh, Canaan to uh, Mesopotamia. And he took up a strategic position next to the village well. Well, he said, why? Well, that's where the maidens came out, to fill water. That was their domestic responsibilities. And he uh, planned his strategy, and in committing his mission to the Lord... He asks a very special favor from God. He says, Lord, may it be that when I say to the girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I will water your camels too. Let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac. This wasn't just pulled out of the hat as a funny little fleece. Camels drank lots of water, especially after a long journey across the desert. Any woman who volunteered to give the camels to drink knew that she was in for a long, hard slog. This was an immediate indication of her willingness to work hard. And so, he says, without saying a word, the man, and of course, he, he did the experiment. Rebecca waltz in on the scene. He gives his test question. She responds exactly like he said. And you would think, well, that's over, right? No. He says, without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord has made his journey successful. Well, uh, she, she met the criterion. So, what is he watching for? Well, the, if you read the text by implication, he sees a few more things. First of all, you will notice in the story that Rebecca ran back and forth between the water trough and the camels. She wasn't just a hard worker. She was enthusiastic about the work she was doing. There was a vitality of spirit in her. And the text uh, implies to us that she maintained this until the camels had drunk to the full. So she was not only hardworking, she was not only enthusiastic with vitality, she was thorough in the work that she did. Well, Abraham's servant had one more test because Abraham had said, it must be from my family. So he runs up to her and says, what's your name and which family are you from? And to his utter delight, she reveals that she's the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. Now, his mission is complete. He falls on his face and he worships God. 
By the way, in the process of the dialogue, Rebecca also discovers that need a place, so she offers him a place. She said, come over to our home, there's plenty of straw for the animals, and you can stay in our home. She was hospitable, and she was kind as well. Now, now why was this important? As I said, he, he wasn't just finding a, a nice-looking, adequate wife. Eliezer knew what her calling was going to be. He had lived with Abraham long enough to know that this was a man who lived in tents and altars. Kept moving around. God at any moment would be telling him to move again. And he moved again. It wasn't going to be a comfortable life. Sarah was dead. She was going to basically be the the head of the home as far as the retinue of servants and managing them was concerned. Raising children, training them. All of this life in a hard land in one of the tough places that we heard about. And so these were important qualities. Not only that, the thing for you and me that makes it relevant to us 21 centuries or so later, or more than that, is that these qualities were revealed in the context of a woman living out her life at home, in the performance of those domestic responsibilities. It wasn't just a a woman. At the end of the story, when the relationship is consummated and the marriage is consummated, in the very last verse, we read these words. Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. He was 40 years old at this time. And we see a picture of a man who was still mourning his mother's death three years after she died. And then comes the statement, he loved her and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. A man who loved his mother to to mourn for her three years after she died. It's not surprising was a man who loved his wife. I've heard it said before and I've seen it borne out in practice. How a man treats his mother is often a good indication of the way how he will treat you as his wife. But the key point for for me is that once again we see these desirable qualities. Again manifested in the context of a family setting. So what's the application for you and me today? I don't think it means driving up to a gas station and saying, I'm going to ask that guy to fill up the gas tank if he also offers to check the oil. Maybe he's going to be the good guy, right? (laughs) I, I think what it says is that we need to observe our prospective mates functioning in their homes. How they treat their parents. How much weight are they pulling in the running of the home? If you begin to resort to rationalizations like, oh yeah, I know he has a terrible temper, but you you should know his mother. Things are going to be so much better when we leave the house. If you find yourself with all those kinds of rationalizations, you're heading for trouble. And then watch them in your home too, not just in their home. This was so the so your family can watch them. This was Eliezer, a non family member, if you will, in a sense, outsider giving perspective. That is so crucial. Uh, as I was preparing this message, I thought of uh, um, somebody who was on staff here many, many years ago, went on to the mission field afterwards. I remember she was saying once how when she was passing through that stage in her life where she would occasionally have friends that were less than desirable. She said, my mother was a very wise woman. She never lectured me. She simply asked me to invite him over for lunch. (laughs) And she said, often it took one lunch meal at home when I saw this friend of mine in my family context. And that was the end of the relationship. The mother was extremely wise. And guys, can I say a word to you? Your mother has a built-in radar from God to detect which wives, women, will not be good for you at all as a wife. 
Be careful. Allow them the opportunity to speak that into your life. Nobody's infallible. But these are just guidelines that God gives to us that we need to keep in mind. Now, the Holy Spirit adds another two things about Rebecca that the Eliezer would never have been able to figure out by watching. It says the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had ever lain with her. Now, this is not a criterion that says good looks are extremely important. They are understandable, but on either side, they are not particularly important as far as the big picture goes because they can be lost very quickly. It's there to underline the fact that even though she was beautiful in the kind of culture that she lived in, she was still a virgin. The the beauty simply highlights or underlines purity. And I want to say this to both of you, guys or gals. Beauty or handsomeness without purity is not a blessing. It can often be a curse. And it cuts both ways. The Bible does not know any double standards at all. This purity is not something that is enjoined upon the women while the men can do whatever they want. It's interesting about Isaac in that story, in the last verse. He was uh, 40 years old. He was living in a culture where there were beautiful women. And not only that, though Abraham's father had become wealthy, he was respected as a chieftain at this time. And there were all kinds of other Hittite chiefs and others. And in those days, people entered into marriages between their children for political reasons, for business reasons, for all kinds of reasons. There would have been no shortage if Abraham, if Isaac had wanted to marry somebody who was good looking and who was wealthy. And that would have been a, been a strategic alliance. But he wasn't. He was actually more concerned about the fact that his mother had died. He was also a pure man who had a Godward dimension to him for when Rebecca was making the trip back, we are told in the last few verses that Isaac went into the fields one evening to meditate. You might find a footnote in your particular Bible verse and says that the Hebrew word for meditate is uncertain, but every translation I read translates as meditation or prayer, which also fits the context. Now what do you think he was praying about? What would you be praying about if your very godly father had sent off his head servant 500 miles back to his family to find a wife for you? So let me kind of boil that all down into a third criterion. A child of God with a common spiritual destiny, in harmony with God's specific call on your life, and demonstrated character, especially in relational harmony within the family. By the way, this is why rushing into marriage is never wise. Ibels puts it this way. He said, character can be counterfeited for longer than one would think. Dishonest people can cover their tracks, and irresponsible people can use charm to appear responsible on the surface. And nearly anyone can give an impression of personal growth to someone who has known them only a short time. I have observed that determined people can counterfeit almost anything to get married. The only way to ferret out the counterfeit is time. Waiting is a no-lose proposition. If character compatibility is proven over time, then the couple can move into marriage with confidence, security and peace. If time flushes out character weaknesses or deceitfulness, then even in the midst of disappointment and hurt, there can be relief and thankfulness that the discovery was made before the knot was tied. In the 28 years that I've been involved in pre-engagement, pre-marriage counseling and marriage, I, I have viola- violated a commitment on speed only twice in my life, in both cases because of my close attachment and love for the families involved, and I live to regret both those decisions. In one case, the marriage came apart, but by the mercy and the grace of God in a completely different setting, it was put together again. Uh, praise God for that. His grace overrules my mistake. In another case, 
it was a disastrous marriage that actually ended up posing huge physical threats to the girl if i had stuck to my guns on those two cases and was willing to hurt the families involved i would have spared two people a lot of difficulty and one of them praise god she escaped with her life i will never again make that mistake i'm prepared to take anybody's anger for delaying their plans for saying no as i said i violated this principle only twice and i've lived to regret it both times do not rush into marriage the fourth and final criterion is sometimes the hardest thing because related to that wait for god's timing and there are three indications in this uh, ancient story that gives us some ideas to how we might gauge when timing is right the first one has to do with parental consent uh, in verse 50 after eliezer has given all the story and uh, how he happened to come here and how rebecca responded and the criterion that he set up and all of that thing and by the way that story is told twice in those 67 verses first when it happens and then eliezer recounts everything in great excruciating detail and it's all there for us that's why it took 67 verses eh? and finally the father betuel and the unc- and the brother laban says this is from the lord we can say nothing to you one way or another parental consent is is crucial let me introduce the second one i want to tell you a story the second one has to do with parents blessing in verse 60 when rebecca's re- ready to go and they blessed rebecca and said to her our sister may you increase to thousands upon thousands may your offspring possess the gates of their enemies parental consent and parental blessing going hand in hand are powerful powerful indicators that the timing is right or that because you know sometimes you can have the right person at the wrong time and you know what the right person at the wrong time becomes a wrong person sham and i got married in 1971 but we almost got married in 1968 so i wrote to my parents at home and their response was a vehement uh, objection and it has nothing to do with sham as a person my family and her family grew up together in india her dad and my dad worked for the, together for the federal government the families knew each other ravi and i were playmates from the time we were 5 years old but it was the, because of the fact that i was a christian the rest of my family was not and here i was going to be marrying somebody who was also a christian which means my children my family and everything would be raised christian and that was really hard for my parents And, and and given the intensity of their objection and their negative feelings towards it sham was extremely uncomfortable one of the things her mother had always taught her was make sure you're welcome in the home that you get married to and so she to my chagrin broke off the whole relationship i had no choice in the matter but the next 3 years of my life were probably the years of my rapidest growth as a christian i'd been a christian for about 8 years at that time but in the next 3 years after that breakup was when god truly became first in my life now 3 years later sham and i resumed our relationship and i wrote home again and nothing had changed on the outside all of the external circumstances were exactly the same as before and this time my parents gave their blessing not only their consent they gave their blessing a sham reminded me last night i forgot to tell this in the story she actually wrote a long letter welcoming her into the family you know what little did i know at that time that years later both my parents would be spending the latter years of their life living with us in this church and that sham's intercession would be a huge factor in my father's eventual commitment to christ i shudder to think of all of that might have been sabotaged if we had rushed ahead 
Parental consent and parental blessing are crucial indicators. And for me, it's another uh, non-negotiable. I will not perform the marriage of any couple if either party, either side's parents say no to that marriage. And by the way, please, resist some rationalizations. One rationalization is, well, my parents aren't Christians. Mine weren't. Some might say, well, my parents are really old-fashioned. Mine were. (laughs) And others might say, well, we're old enough to make our decision while we were. And you know, shortly after I began my overseas ministries with my brother-in-law, Ravi's organization, when I was teaching this in, in one of the units, one young couple came, both medical doctors, beautiful Christians, you know. Uh, all the other criteria were in place. And she said, but this will not work. My dad will never give permission. Uh, and this wasn't even because one was a Christian, one wasn't. They were just two separate factions of Christians. Where intermarriage was just considered taboo. It was a totally irrational, non-biblical objection. So she said, there's no point. This won't happen. I said, you know, everything within my heart longs to say to you, yeah, this is one case where you can go ahead because everything makes sense. I said, I just can't. I just cannot. Please wait and trust God. Very, very reluctantly they agreed because it was just a demonstration of the rest of their lives, their character. Six months, six months later I got a letter from them saying, you're not going to believe what happened. My dad has given us blessing and both of them today are, are working in one of the difficult parts in the country, remote medical doctors. Okay, so but the third one is the ability to provide for practical needs. When Eliezer makes his presentation to Bethuel and Laban, he says, amongst other things, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly and he has become wealthy. My master's wife Sarah has borne him a son in her old age and Abraham has given everything he owns to this son. Now, he wasn't just boasting about wealth. Nor is this an indication that one of the criteria should be that our our potential sons-in-law should be rich. But, but, Fathers, mothers, you are right in insisting that there be some demonstration of ability to provide for practical needs. You cannot live on love and fresh air. Okay, now if you look at these four criteria, child of God with a common spiritual destiny, in harmony with God's specific call on your life, demonstrated character, especially in relational harmony in the family, waiting for God's timing, some of us are probably going to say, The most important thing is not there at all. What about love and romance? (laughs) Which is the dominant driving issue in our lives when it comes to selecting mates. Verse 67, the last word in this chapter says, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah. He married Rebecca so she became his wife and he loved her. Love came after marriage. So what do we do with all these feelings that are often part of romantic love. God's made us that way too. Now, because in certain cultures, there's no opportunity to, to even get to that stage. Certainly when I was growing up in India, even dating was not an issue. Many cultures live like that. I think Mike Mason in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, probably comes closer to the truth than anyone else when he says, All of those things that we capture under the realm of romantic love, he said, is God's way of getting us to make a commitment we would never otherwise dare to do. And he's right. Because as we learned, from the second message in God's blueprint for marriage, marriage is God's unique device for confronting us with our fallenness and sinfulness and, and and our spouses become the greatest change agents in our lives. 
So, and, and as we learn from the message on singlehood, some people say, you know what, I, I don't want to be, I can be more effective as a Christian than I am. And that's a very, very legitimate reason. We talked about that, that too. But it isn't that those things are not real. It is that they are real for the phase that they are in. But when you get married, whether you like it or not, this is what will have to happen. Romantic love will die. I'm not talking about kindness and consideration and gentleness and all of that thing that opens up a woman's heart to a man and vice versa. That won't die. That's the kind of love we talked about last week. But this kind of thing that happens so easily, where no one needs to tell you to be kind to the other person, that dies. But the death of romantic love is the opportunity for the development of genuine love. And genuine intimacy, which almost always is forged out of the raw material of conflict. Conflict so often throws up the raw material out of which genuine intimacy is forged. That's something you need to have a good grasp and understanding of. Because every single couple that ever got married, all the ones that have broken up and have all the problems afterwards, ask them how they felt on their wedding day. This was great. We're in love. Everything will be fine. Otherwise, they won't be getting married, right? So what happens? It's because they didn't understand this from the beginning. And so put this into the equation. So, those of you who are single, who as far as you can tell are not called to that life of singlehood that, we, that is now elevated to that glorious status of equivalence to marriage because of mission, uh, and you want to be and you desire to be married, it's a perfectly holy and appropriate desire. Uh, if you happen to be in not in a relationship right now, better set these things as your criteria. And if you happen to be in one, may I encourage you to just run, run your present relationship through this checklist and make the changes that you need to make. And it may include something as harsh as terminating the relationship. And for those of us who are married, it might be a good opportunity to take a look and say, hey, were any one of these significantly violated in my life? And you know what? It's not a matter of rebellion. You may not have been aware of it. That's okay. And, and God doesn't want us to deal with it. You can't undo the past. Not if we beat ourselves over the head in the past, but we recognize with sanity and say, you know what? I never waited. Or I never particularly bothered about harmony. Whatever it is. Just deal with it the way God wants us to deal with our past. That is to acknowledge it, call it for what God calls it, Commit, commit yourself to him and then you have moving on with a new power and strength in your own relationship. As I said, I haven't touched a whole lot of what-if questions. The study guide has been written so you can go deeper into this and learn from one another. Colossians 3.16, I remind you of that often. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you got children, older children, might be a great Subject for family devotional time, getting together, talking about it, finding out what your sons and daughters think of a message like this, talking with them, uh, sharing about your own relationship. It's a great uh, fuel for holy conversations like that to take place. So however, God wants you to use it. You just respond appropriately. And now, as the worship team comes and leads us in a couple of songs, we ask God before the message to speak to us. We're now going to be using the words of these songs to respond appropriately to what we've heard. You know, when I heard David's presentation last night too, but this morning as we was going through the question, what, what does it take to bring about change? I thought, well, this is my blessing for you today. First of all, 
all of all of us are insiders in some dark place. <laughs> and I just want to bless you. May the Holy Spirit of God lead you to recognize the dark place in which you have been called to be an insider. It might be your school, classroom. It might be your home. It might be your neighborhood. It might be the youth group. It might be the community that you're working in. May God grant you the grace to recognize and now welcome the hard place because Jesus is there. And then may the Spirit of God build Christ's values into your life. Honesty, integrity, faith, those things we looked at. Perseverance, passion. May He then give you a vision of what is possible. Of what will happen to that hard place. Or more likely, what will happen to the individuals that are making that place hard. And then, may I bless you with the support that you need in this body of believers to be able to persevere until the light begins to shine in your hard place. Go in Jesus' name.